I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit recently decided the case Knight Institute versus Trump. Uh, that, dear We the People listeners, you remember because we discussed it a while ago, is a lawsuit filed by Twitter users that were blocked by President Trump. The court held that the First Amendment prohibits President Trump from blocking people on Twitter based on their viewpoints. There's been a similar lawsuit filed recently against Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez by uh, people claiming uh, that she blocked them unconstitutionally on Twitter. And joining us to unpack these two cases and explore digital speech, public fora, and the First Amendment are two of America's leading First Amendment experts joining for a rematch for our discussion of the earlier district court version of this case. I'm so thrilled to have both of them back. Katie Fallow is a senior attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University and was one of the lead attorneys representing the block Twitter users and the Knight Institute in Knight Institute versus Trump. She was previously a partner at Jenner and Block, where she litigated First Amendment cases and was deputy director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission. Katie, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. And David French is senior fellow at the National Review Institute and senior writer for National Review. Uh, David was previously the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, that's the Great Fire Institute, and a lecturer at Cornell Law School, a senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, and a frequent friend and uh, repeat champion on We the People. David, it is always wonderful to have you back as well. Thanks so much for having me back. I deeply appreciate it. Katie, let's jump into the Second Circuit's decision. The court held that Twitter represents an outlet for official communications because it's controlled by President Trump and is a public forum. And it found that under these circumstances, Trump's decision to block users was impermissible state action and suppress their dissent. Tell us more about the reasoning of the Second Circuit. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, just by way of a little background, we represented seven individuals who are people from all walks of life across the country, including a sociology professor in Maryland, a police officer in Texas, a writer in New York City, all of whom uh, the litigation showed were blocked personally by President Trump from his at real Donald Trump account after they replied to one of his tweets and said something critical of his presidency or his policies. And as you mentioned, the district court uh, had held that that action was unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination under the First Amendment. And on July 9th, uh, the Second Circuit issued its decision affirming the district court and holding that his actions did violate the First Amendment. The Second Circuit first, you know, went through the the uh, Department of Justice's arguments for why this should not be subject to the First Amendment. Because, you know, one really important factor in this litigation is that the government essentially conceded in a stipulation that the president had engaged in viewpoint discrimination, that the individuals were blocked because of their viewpoint. And under longstanding First Amendment law, that is, you know, the first cardinal sin of a 
censorship is blocking someone because of their views. So um, the president and the other defendant, his social media manager, Dan Scavino, argued, well, it's not actually a government account subject to the First Amendment. It's a purely personal account. And the Second Circuit rejected that argument and found that President Trump and his staff, including Mr. Scavino, have, have since he was inaugurated, used this Twitter account, which he had set up before he was president. But once he became president, he used it for official government purposes. And the Second Circuit pointed to examples like the fact that the president has used the account to uh, announce his appointment of members of his administration, to engage in foreign relations with other leaders of other countries, to announce important policy decisions like the ban on transgender individuals serving in the um, military. And the Second Circuit also pointed to the fact that the National Archives considers the president's Twitter, his at real Donald Trump Twitter account, to be official presidential records subject to the requirement that they be preserved. So the court held that the account was subject to the First Amendment, essentially that there is state action because the president is operating the Twitter account for official purposes. And also uh, the court rejected the argument that um, to the extent that it was considered an official account, DOJ argued, well, then it's government speech. It just represents the president's own speech because under First Amendment doctrine, the government may, the government itself may engage in, quote, viewpoint discrimination, meaning it may express its own views and public officials may express their own views. Um, But they held that, the court held that even if the president's own tweets were considered government speech, the replies, which everyone who follows him can post a reply directly to the president, and these replies show up in the comment threads under the president's tweets, those replies cannot be considered government speech. They're not curated in any way. And they are actually speech of individual citizens that takes place in what is known as a public forum. So the Second Circuit applied the public forum doctrine and said, in essence, just as um, if a public official like the president were to host an open public meeting, that, that would be considered a public forum. And you can't exclude people or kick people out from that public meeting based on their viewpoint. David, what is your response to both of the Second Circuit's holding, namely that um, at real Donald Trump is indeed a government account subject to the First Amendment and that the replies of citizens are uh, protected speech because they take place in a public forum? Yeah, well, uh, before I give my legal reply, first, uh, congratulations to Katie on a victory, which could very well be the victory in the case. I mean, it's far from certain the Supreme Court will take this or, and I don't know if uh, there's already been an, if there's been an en banc appeal yet, but certainly the Second Circuit may not uh, take en banc review. So this could be the decision in the case. So congratulations on the outcome. I'm going to, let me, let me begin by saying, I find this, as a, as a person who's litigated in the First Amendment arena for a long time, I, I find this to be a hard case. Um, but here's why, in a nutshell, I come down on the, uh, I, I come down on, the, the, on Donald Trump's side on the case. First, absolutely, uh, this is not private personal speech. This is government speech. And yes, it is viewpoint discrimination. 
And so in those circumstances, if you've got a government speaker speaking in their official capacity, and then they engage in viewpoint discrimination, normally that's a, you know, almost a virtual lay down hand in court in First Amendment case law. But I think here what we're talking about is a situation, I think if we're going to draw an analogy here, uh, and the court had an analogy where it, it talked about, um, for example, even though Twitter is a private, uh, is a private company, that it could still be under the temporary control of the government. And it used a comparison of, say, a privately owned theater leased or operated by the city as being a public forum. Uh, that was a case, Promotions Limited versus Conrad, 1975 case. And it compared uh, Donald Trump's use of Twitter to essentially a pri- like a private lease. I think the actual comparison is more like as if Donald Trump, rather than using Twitter, uh, to make his various announcements or issue his various insults. I think the, the bottom line is that Twitter, it's as if he's a guest at Sean Hannity's radio show. And what he's doing is every now and then he's actually hanging up on a collar. He's hitting that kill button. Uh, but it's Sean Hannity's radio show. His presence on the show is entirely at Sean Hannity's discretion. His access to the kill button is entirely at Sean Hannity's discretion. Uh, no money has exchanged hands. He doesn't have any real property right here. Um, Twitter's terms of service are really, really clear. I mean, the, the Twitter is basically just in total control, and you exist at Twitter's total permission. For example, it says, we may suspend or terminate your account or cease providing you with all or part of the services at any time for any or no reason. Any or no reason. Um, and then it's not even, you know, once you issue your tweet, it's also Twitter kind of takes ownership of it. I mean, it's you're granting Twitter this worldwide, non-exclusive, royalty-free license to use, copy, reproduce, blah, 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 what you put on Twitter. And so in that sense, it strikes me as much more like Donald Trump is a essentially a, a repeated guest on a radio show. And he is engaging in his in government speech on a platform that is wholly owned and completely controlled by a private entity. So in that circumstance, even though we have the elements of of a government actor acting in his official capacity and uh, blocking, or if he's on a call-in show hitting the kill switch on a viewpoint discriminatory basis, I would concur with the argument that what he's engaging in here is government speech. And that, you know, one of the interesting, another uh, reason why I like the analogy is a call-in, uh, a caller to a call-in show. If a government official is trying to uh, announce an initiative or he's trying to uh, explain some legislation, a caller can hijack his speech and can hijack the thread, so to speak. And in much the same way that people on Twitter can hijack the thread, so to speak. And so I think that the lack of actual control here. Uh, and the total control that Twitter has. I mean, Twitter right now could block him from the platform entirely. In fact, a lot of people have made a pretty credible argument that he's violated the terms of service uh, on multiple occasions. So I think that the total lack of ownership or control in a way that if I have a lease that uh, that's different from when I have a when I have a lease. When I have a lease, I I give money. I have. Um, written contractual rights to the space to control the space according to the terms of the lease. None of that is here.
Katie, you have compared Twitter not to Sean Hannity's radio show, but to the Athenian Agora in a, in a, in a very vivid image. Uh, to tell us more about why you think that it is a public forum, more like the Agora than like a private radio show. Tell us about the case law about public fora, what the leading Supreme Court precedents are and how the Second Circuit applied them, and then uh, why you disagree with David's conclusion that it's essentially not a public forum. Yeah, so um, the Supreme Court has for many years, including starting with the case that David mentioned, the Southeast Promotions versus Conrad case, um, established a doctrine called the Public Forum Doctrine. And the public forum is traditionally, you know, in that article I discussed, you know, going all the way back to Athens, but, you know, much more recently, the idea that in, you know, Hyde Park or in the nation's um, parks and sidewalks, those are what are called traditional public forums. And the idea is that if it is public property, it's considered the people's property and meaning that everyone can get up and speak their mind subject to maybe time, place, or manner ro- rules that don't have anything to do with the content of your speech. And the government cannot uh, censor you in those forums based on the content of your speech. The Supreme Court has in the past several decades held that not only does that public forum doctrine apply to traditional places like parks and sidewalks, but to non-traditional locations where the government opens up spaces that it owns or controls and allows people to engage in speech in those spaces. And when that happens, it's known as a designated public forum, meaning it's not traditional, but it has been designated as such. And the court has held that the government may not uh, discriminate or exclude someone from those forums based on viewpoint. Um, in that Southeastern Promotions case, that was a case, as David mentioned, where a municipality had rented a building, uh, leased a building from a private owner and allowed people, members of the community, to put on plays in that theater, in that building. And then they denied uh, a application for a company to show the the play the musical hair because it you know if it's controversial content and the supreme court although it doesn't i think in this southeastern promotions case talk use the phrase public forum but it's considered one of the first public forum cases struck that down and said that was unconstitutional um i I understand what David is saying in the sense of a Twitter account is different from a long-term building lease, but I think in these circumstances, that's a distinction without a constitutional difference because I think the, the, the operative fact here is the ability of the government official to control access to the forum. So... Uh, my understanding of Twitter is that when you are an account holder, even if Twitter retains the ultimate ability to to kick you off of its platform or to take your account away from you, you are, you do have rights as an account holder. You have a right to use only your handle. Uh, no one else can use it. Um, and you have the right to block people from following you. You have a right to mute people who you don't want to. And But particularly through the blocking function, you have 
the ability to control access to the forum. So, and in this instance, that's exactly what the president did. So my view is, and I mean, I do find this case very interesting because certainly we, and in my office, it it gives rise to a, a million analogies and they're always interesting to discuss. But, you know, I think the better analogy would be if, um, a government actor or, you know, if Sean Hannity was a government official and he decided to host a radio program on uh, a serious radio, but it was a program in his capacity as a public official and he allowed everyone to call in and was not exercising, I mean, to some extent you have to look at the specific technology involved because obviously with a radio call-in program, you're going to have a lot more selection because you don't have limitless space. Um, But with a Twitter account, or if you did have an ability where you could allow limitless call-ins, I think the better analogy is the government official and Trump is acting as the host, and he's controlling access to the forum. And so it's not as if he's a guest in someone else's uh, show. He is the host of the show. The fact that the radio station could eventually say you can't have this show anymore doesn't change the fact that when he's hosting a public forum in via a radio program, he is would be subject to the First Amendment. And I think, you know, this analogy about whether or not when government officials are using um, privately owned communications uh, technologies, you know, for example, under um, I think David's approach, that means any social media account, even the official at POTUS Twitter account or at White House Twitter account, or, you know, if the Department of Health and Human Services had a website where they invited the public to comment on, is the ACA working? And allowed everyone to comment and, you know, post comments or reply tweets or post comments on a Facebook page or reply tweets or, and then said, but we're going to delete everybody or block anyone who criticizes how the ACA is operating. That's a problem because in my view, that's a public forum and the government should not be able to censor people in order to create a sort of one-sided echo chamber where only people supporting the government are allowed to speak. David, your response to those two powerful points. First, Katie says that if we're talking about Twitter uh, and comparing it to a radio show, then President Trump is the host, not the guest, because in practice, uh, Twitter doesn't pull the plug on uh, hosts with multi-million followers. And also that your analogy would suggest that even a government account could discriminate against commenters because Twitter has the ultimate authority to shut it down. Yeah, so I, I would say uh, a couple of things. One, going back to – there, I think that I would agree with Katie that uh, an official government account on a private social media platform that is under the total control of the social media platform, the same re- reasoning applies. Um, the, the, one of the things, because these platforms have generally been pretty laissez-faire – and these, these platforms have generally allowed, in particular, the large accounts to operate with impunity, but not entire, that's not entirely true. I mean, we've seen waves of, uh, we've seen these account, these social media companies move in sort of waves of uh, tightened controls aimed sometimes even at pretty big voices online that because they've been laissez-faire, 
I think it creates an illusion of control that does not exist. I think the legal facts of, on the, uh, uh, the legal fact of the matter uh, is that these government accounts, uh, Donald Trump's account, AOC's account, these are in essence people who are operating as guests in Twitter's home or guests in Facebook's home. And yes, they're engaged in their own speech. It is, it is not Facebook speech. Uh, but Facebook and Twitter are in control of the forum. And in fact, in an interesting kind of way, when we're talking about the government saying who uh, a, a court, which is an arm of the government, saying who can and cannot be blocked on these forum, uh, on these platforms that are entirely owned and controlled by private companies, you're also getting a form of government intervention into the operation of this entirely private platform. So, this is this is Twitter's uh, this is Twitter's property, completely owned by Twitter, completely controlled by Twitter, that has decided to let Donald Trump have free reign. Now we can debate whether that's appropriate under the terms of service of Twitter, and there's been lots of arguments about that. Um, or whether it's wise for Twitter to allow Donald Trump to have free reign or to treat him somehow differently to where Twitter itself could prevent him from blocking or Twitter itself could for, to, could provide a remedy here. Uh, but the fact of the matter that Twitter on its private platform has chosen to give him free reign. And that is what I would believe that, and this, this is something that I would say is, is Twitter's right, that Twitter on its platform has that ability to give its users free reign if it so chooses. And what you have is a court here coming in and saying, no, Twitter, you cannot. You cannot give one of your users free reign on your own platform. Uh, you cannot let him use the platform the way you let others use the platform. So I think Twitter and, and other groups like Facebook have an interest here. Now, the difference with a government website that is where a the government controls the website, it has... Uh, it, the government is operating the website according to, um, you know, it's in many times using its own servers uh, under agreements, perhaps with private vendors that allow the use of servers. Uh, the government has a degree of legal ownership and control that is different from when you're a guest in Twitter's house or a guest in Facebook's house. And so I think that, um, uh, and again, when you're talking about um, a radio host, you often have this, well, you almost always have, once again, sort of the exchange of money. And the exchange of money um, in a, a economic and contractual relationship that just simply doesn't exist here. Uh, I think a lot of us are just not all that conscious because Twitter and Facebook leave us alone of the fact that we're just really nobodies. <laughs> <laughs> on there. We're entirely guests in their house. Uh, we will have to leave just like any guest in any of our houses would have to leave the instant we said so for whatever reason we say so. And I, I think that legal reality just has uh, real salience here. Many thanks for that and for a really interesting discussion about whether uh, Twitter users should be considered guests in Twitter's house or if they're public figures, hosts of their own shows. So, Katie, the Second Circuit has held that we are, uh, or rather President Trump, is a host rather than a guest. Let's explore the implications of that, both for other suits involving public officials who block on Twitter and then for 
regulation of speech on Twitter more broadly. So the obvious uh, case that is coming up next is the suit against Representative uh, AOC for blocking users. Tell us about the facts of that case. Is it similar to the facts of the Trump case? Um, And in light of the Trump precedent, how is the AOC court likely to rule? Yeah, so... um On the exact same day that the Second Circuit ruled in our lawsuit, um, there were reports of two lawsuits being filed against Representative Ocasio-Cortez. I believe, well, I think they're both filed in federal court in New York. And one was filed by a state, a New York State assemblyman, and he alleged that Representative Ocasio-Cortez Uh, blocked him from her Twitter account, which, similar to President Trump's account, is... um she was set up by her personally before she was uh, a, a public official. And he said that she blocked him because he had tweeted replies to her criticizing her statements comparing the migrant detention camps to con- concentration camps. Um my understanding from looking at the complaint is it doesn't actually contain the tweet that prompted the blocking. So, you know, as in all of these cases, it's really important to look at the specific facts. But based on the face of it, that sounds like he is alleging that he engaged in uh, political speech, which is at the core of First Amendment protection. And I think that the principles of the Second Circuit decision would apply with full force to um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez's Twitter account. Now, it's important to note that the Second Circuit in its decision said it was not holding that any particular public official's social media account is a a public one that's subject to the First Amendment. Um, The court acknowledged that some public officials may operate purely personal social media accounts. And in every case alleging a First Amendment violation, you need to look at the ways in which the um, government employee is using their social media account. And, you know, that is why the court in our case went through and and looked at all of the facts and including, you know, all the ways he used it for official actions and pronouncements. And um, also, you know, he used government staff to help him in administering the account. So uh, that is a fact that supports the conclusion that it's a official account, not a purely personal one, if you have government employees help you run the account. So I think you'd want to apply the same kind of factors in evaluating AOC's Twitter account. Um, Based on what I've seen, it it seems to be that she similarly uses it for official purposes. And, you know, we would hope that she would not block people based on their political views. You know, I think that applies across the political spectrum. There is, as you mentioned, or I don't know if you mentioned, but I mentioned there's, there were two cases. So um, there was another case filed by um, a YouTube star with the colorful uh, persona Joey Salads, who is in fact a (laughs) man, yes, uh, who is running for Congress in Staten Island and South Brooklyn against uh, Congressman Max Rose. And his complaint is even more bare bones than the other complaint, but I believe that he has similarly alleged that she blocked him based on... uh, you know, statements that he made criticizing her. 
Uh, David, if you were advising uh, Representative Octavio Cortez, um, what distinctions would you draw to help her win her case in light of the Trump precedent? It sounds like relevant factors include whether her Twitter account was used for official purposes, whether she was blocking people for political purposes or other purposes like uh, harassment perhaps. Um, what what uh, arguments does she have at, your, at, at, at her disposal? Well, this is the point where Katie and I are going to agree a ton because I think the Second Circuit precedent provides a roadmap here. Um, look, if you're if you do the fact specific inquiry and you discover upon that inquiry that that Twitter account is used for official purposes, for government purposes, then all of the reasoning that applies in the Second Circuit is going to start to lock in. So, uh, and and this is something I think that politicians. Going forward, so long as this this uh, precedent stays on the books, are going. This is going to be an issue for them because a lot of times and often they become uh, public figures during the course of a campaign before they have an official Twitter account. So they they have this enormous following on a personal account, uh, move into public office, have the uh, Twitter account of the of the office, which is sort of has a, a small fraction of the reach. So if they really want to communicate with their constituents, then they're going to be using that uh, so-called personal account or what we would, I guess, say now would be a formerly personal account if they transform it into an instrument of their office. And in that circumstance, the, this kind of precedent, if they're, you know, if they're living in, and if they're working out of the and Second Circuit jurisdiction obtains and they're going to face this precedent. And you know, I think there's a pretty simple way for them to escape this precedent, which is to start using the personal account for personal matters. Um, more pictures of pets, less statements <laughs> of public uh, policy. So I think that there is a, a, a pretty – what this precedent is, is I think pretty clear. And it's pretty clear that once you start using a personal account for official government business, First Amendment obligations are going to start to lock in. And so – in that circumstance, um, if if the plaintiffs in the case can prove similar facts in the AOC case, I don't think there's any reason to believe uh, that so long as the Second Circuit precedent holds that they won't win. Katie, what is the significance of the Trump case precedent for the debate about free speech online more broadly? Not long ago, the president held a White House summit about social media regulation um, at the summit uh, attendees denounced alleged discrimination against conservative speakers on Facebook and Twitter. Um, is the Second Circuit's holding that Twitter is a public forum, does that have implications for the ability of Twitter to discriminate against speakers, or is it limited simply to public officials who block users on social media? Yeah, well, I think there's sort of two issues here. In terms of how this decision will affect communications online, I mean, we did just, you know, touch upon some of that and the idea that the principles announced in the Second Circuit's decision would apply to public officials across the country and at all levels of government. Um, and I believe that that is important because, uh, as the Supreme Court noted a couple of years ago in its case, the Packingham case, uh, really discussing the growth of social media as, you know, colloquially 
Justice Kennedy, this was his one of his last first big First Amendment cases, but he said that social media now is sort of the new modern public square. And you know, it's increasingly a place where public officials across the spectrum are using social media accounts as the primary, if not the exclusive way that they talk to and hear from constituents. And, you know, people have remarked upon that many Congress people are no longer having town halls where they allow people to come in and tell them how they think they're doing or whether they support certain policies, but instead are conducting those kinds of discussions on and through public Uh, social media accounts. So I think it's actually very important and kind of going back to our earlier discussion, one reason why I think the focus should be and why the courts have focused on whether the government official controls access to a forum on a social media account, even if Twitter ultimately controls access to the platform, is if as people as public officials increasingly use social media accounts in this way they should not be allowed to essentially privatize the functioning of government and evade the requirements of the first amendment by moving all of their discussions and what what were heretofore known as public forums onto private social media platforms um and i will also note on that so, and then going into the second question about whether it could be, these cases could be used to hold that Twitter is subject to the First Amendment it, if it takes action against someone based on their speech. You know, I think the answer to that is clearly no. The courts have, you know, long held and recently affirmed that the First Amendment applies to state actors, to government actors, not to private individuals. So private individuals can block whoever they want to on Twitter. And Twitter, as a private corporation with First Amendment rights, can... Um, set up its platform and establish rules for speech in the way it wants and is not subject to the First Amendment. So I think that's pretty clear. I also note that in our case um, before the Second Circuit, a organization of tech companies submitted an amicus brief saying, uh, essentially, we don't have any opinion on how this case should come out, meaning they didn't have any objection to um, imposing liability on government actors like President Trump. But the brief said, we just want to make clear that in no way should this be held to open the door to holding private actors liable under the First Amendment. So... David, what is your view about the impact of the Knight case on other cases involving social media's status as a public forum? Understanding you disagree with the holding, now that the Second Circuit has held that Twitter is a public forum, could that have implications for uh, Twitter's ability to discriminate against conservative speakers or beyond the specific facts of public officials who are blocking other users on Twitter? Well, I'm gonna I can agree with that with Katie that this case obviously does not transform Twitter into uh, a, a, an entity bound by the First Amendment. It doesn't essentially recreate Twitter as a government entity. But what I, I my concern is that what the decision does is it creates government interference into Twitter's policies. Uh, it creates a uh, essentially a government imposed rule on Twi- on as to how Twitter is going to treat the accounts of its public official users. And I do think that that, uh, I understand that the tech companies express no opinion on this, but I, 
I do think that that is a, a crack a foot in the door that I think is an inappropriate as far as the, uh, the, the role of government in regulating how Twitter treats its users um, and differentiating its users by different classes of users and, and, and restricting the ways in which Twitter can regulate its, its own platform uh, regarding those users. And I do think that's, that is something that troubles me. But like I said from the very beginning, I think this is one of your more interesting, tougher First Amendment cases because we are talking about, uh, and we've been using a lot of different analogies, and all of them are imperfect to a degree because we haven't had anything quite like this social and media environment that we're living in. And I, and I would say one thing that, you know, Katie is right that these uh, politicians are increasingly migrating uh, their operations onto social media. And I would say there, are, there, is a, uh, there are two risks involved there. One, it's a risk the politicians are taking, which is uh, to, for various reasons, whether to evade in-person contact with constituents, uh, to evade uh, contact with the media, they're moving onto these platforms or to you know, provide a, a continual unfiltered access to constituents to take the more positive spin on it. Uh, they're moving into other people's homes to engage in speech and that's at their own risk. Um, they are, they are they're taking a risk there. And especially as our politics grow more polarized, uh, especially as our politics uh, get, are more, um, uh, vicious and angry. I mean, this is, they're taking a risk. And then the other aspect of this is as these politicians invest more in social media and they view social media as sort of their platform, I think that begins to raise a greater, uh, it raises a greater risk that the politicians will start to try to regulate it to protect themselves. And you've already seen some of that in the Josh Hawley proposed uh, uh, legislation where he is advocating the creation of a government uh, or that government commission should determine whether um, whether Twitter's or large social media platforms um, speech rules are politically neutral. And I think that that's a, a real danger. So really two big questions on the table. One, government officials' ability to block and regulate users on social media. And the second, the government's ability to regulate the rules of the platform themselves. On the first question, Katie, think forward to the next series of really important uh, speech discrimination cases by government officials. Is it uh, government officials who use Facebook or radio shows or um, other future incarnations of Twitter? And in, in that sense, could this night case be a, a landmark, a kind of New York Times versus Sullivan for the social media age in terms of restricting their ability to block users, or is it not that big a deal? Well, certainly from <laughs> the Knight First Amendment's perspective, I mean, uh, uh, Institute's perspective in mind, you know, we always would love to be in a case compared to New York Times versus <laughs> Sullivan. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I can't purport to, uh, to say that yet. Um, but I do think it is a very important um, case, and it's actually the second court of appeals case um, on these dealing with these issues. The first one was decided in January of this year. The Fourth Circuit ruled in a case involving people with much smaller profiles, both the 
the person who was blocked and the public official. Uh, it, the case is called Davison versus Randall. And in that case, it was a um, man who lives in Loudoun County, Virginia, and he was blocked by his um, the local Loudoun County Board of Supervisors. The chair of that Board of Supervisors blocked him from her uh, chair, Phyllis J. Randall, Facebook page. And the issues were actually quite similar because she argued that it was a personal account that she set up on her own and thus was not an official county account. And um, But the court, the Fourth Circuit in that case, also held that she had engaged in viewpoint discrimination when she blocked him from actually temporarily from commenting on her Facebook page and that the way that she used her page showed that it was an official account, not a personal account. So I think both of these decisions um, set up a good framework for evaluating them, uh, evaluating these kinds of cases. And I do think, you know, at least in my experience as a First Amendment litigator, you know, whenever there's a new form of communication or a new kind of uh, technology, uh, people grapple, you know, legislators and individuals and government um, officials grapple with, is this a new thing altogether that we cannot apply pre-existing First Amendment doctrine to? And thus, we shouldn't even uh, attempt to delve into that. And, you know, I think Justice Alito has and, and others, justices have, you know, made that argument. This is so new, we shouldn't um, make any constitutional rules and sort of see how it, it works out. But there are other justices, including um, Justice Kennedy and actually, interestingly, um, Justice Scalia in in the Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association, which is a case involving um, a law, striking down laws that would restrict the sale of violent video games to minors, and in that case, held, you know, just because a matter of a manner of communication is new, does not mean that we can't apply these pre-existing rules. And you know, judges have a lot of good tools that they use, including things like, we're going to look at this fact by fact basis. We're going to look at the specific comments that, you know, prompted the blocking and, um, and establish sort of the new rules of the road. And, you know, I would hope that what this case would do would be that as more public officials are aware of the case and the holding that they start to, uh, operate their social media accounts in ways that comply with the First Amendment. So, for instance, there is, um, I hope I don't get this wrong, there's a representative in Ohio, I believe, with um, Cohen, and he had been, I don't know if it's Steve Cohen, but it may be, um, I apologize, but um, he had been blocking people who were criticizing him, and he's a Democrat, from his social media account. And after this decision came out, he announced that he would no longer block people from his Twitter account. David, last word is to you. You are a, a heroic defender of uh, free speech, understood that you do not think that Twitter should be considered a public forum. But in light of the Knight decision, uh, what, what are the biggest threats to free speech that you see coming down the pike uh, when it comes to online free speech and what, if anything, is the implication of this decision for those threats? Yeah, I think there are two threats to free speech coming online. One is coming from within the social media companies themselves and one is coming from the government. Um, and, and from within social media companies themselves, now there's no legal threat to free speech when, when social media companies regulate uh, in, in 
uh, change their user standards. There's more of a cultural threat to free speech. How much do we still as Americans relish a marketplace of ideas? And and I have long urged uh, social media companies as a voluntary matter to, to adopt uh, a First Amendment-based framework for determining the speech rules on their sites. In other words, viewpoint neutrality is a lodestar. However, understanding that uh, uh, harassment, uh, invasions of privacy, and all the kinds of common law torts that have existed alongside the First Amendment, the, these common law principles that exi- have existed alongside the First Amendment, uh, protect people in, uh, from truly bad actors along with, of course, blocking and muting functions protect people from truly bad actors. So I think that as a cultural matter, I would like to see social media companies um, protect a robust marketplace of ideas according to First Amendment principles that I think strike the right balance between viewpoint neutrality and protection of individuals from truly malicious actors. Um, As a legal matter, I think there is an emerging, particularly on the right, desire to override existing First Amendment doctrine for the sake of regulating and, and regulating the speech policies of these private companies. And the Holly legislation is a principal example of this. This is sort of one that's been bandied about along much of the right as a kind of a model piece of legislation. And essentially what it says, is, as I, as I said earlier, is social media companies of a certain size would have to to obtain um, continued stat- federal statutory protection from uh, things like libel and slander lawsuits for the the posts of their users would have to certify uh, and be certified as an engaging in politically neutral um, policy speech policies regarding political speech and the definitions. Of, politi- of neutrality there are so broad and vague that under existing First Amendment case law, they would be struck down relatively quickly. Um, but the, the move here is to say, in essence, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, are this new thing. They require a new legal response, a legal response that, that runs counter to traditional First Amendment doctrine, which would inject the government directly into these private companies um, determinations of speech policies regarding political speech. And I think that that is a, as a legal matter, I think that that's an ominous development. Um, the f- existing First Amendment framework can handle Facebook and Twitter quite well. Uh, I think Facebook and Twitter would do well to adopt a, uh, something that looks a lot like a, a First Amendment framework to maintain a robust marketplace of ideas. But I think the online space is where we're seeing um, both culturally and legally some of the emerging, uh, the greatest emerging threats to uh, the marketplace of ideas, um, legal regime and cultural regime in the United States. Thank you so much, Katie Fellow and David French, for a really illuminating and subtle uh, discussion of an important case, the Knight First Amendment Institute versus Trump and the future of online free speech. It is a privilege to have two such distinguished defenders of the First Amendment uh, disagree so thoughtfully about this very important question. Uh, David, Katie, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by the Constitutional Content Team. 
The homework of the week, you know it, dear We the People friends. Read Knight First Amendment Institute versus Trump. You can quickly find it online. You heard David and Katie disagree so thoughtfully about it. If you read the opinion, write to me and tell me whether you think Katie or David is the better argument. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcast and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And remember always, dear We the People friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. And I would love you to become a member and just donate a dollar to signal your engagement, passion, and support. And give a donation of any amount to support the work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.